grace and peace are yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters. In early 2022, on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Dua Lipa, the Albanian London-born pop singer, was the guest. Stephen Colbert is asking her questions. Finds out that she is an aspiring podcast host herself. We talk about that. She likes to interview. She likes to ask people questions. And then Colbert does something that's a little bit risky on live television. Live television could have gone a lot more awkward than it did. He said, "Okay, will you like? Would you like to ask me something?" Totally turns it over to her, and she thinks a little bit, and she says, "Well, there was one thing I was wondering. I was wondering how your faith." intersects with your career? Does your comedy and your faith ever overlap? You see, Stephen Colbert is pretty open about him being a Catholic. He has faith in Jesus to some extent. And he's he's blindsided by that question. He didn't anticipate something so thoughtful, so he says, yeah, well, the most important thing that he ever realized is that death is not defeat. The most important perspective for him as he approaches his career is knowing that he's in it for eternity, immortality, not just this life. And you can think whatever you want about Stephen Colbert, his politics, his jokes, but on this point, he pretty well nails it, I would say. Imagine that you were in Colbert's chair, though, and you were asked the exact same thing. How does your faith intersect, not with your comedy, but with your life, with your career, with your day-to-day? How would you respond? I would imagine I would place some money on the fact that Jesus' name would come up at some point in your response to whatever you would say. You would mention Jesus. But how does your relationship with Jesus affect your perspective on life? How does your relationship with Jesus, not just as we practice it here in church, but out there, how does it affect the way you go to the grocery store, or the way you answer the phone, or the way you think about the stranger walking down on the street, or the way you react? To the news. That's what Matthew is encouraging us to consider with his account of the crucifixion. Because, as far as depictions of the crucifixion go, if you really pay attention, Matthew doesn't really include the details we might expect if we were recording what was happening at the crucifixion. Matthew doesn't really record as much detail about what it feels like to be crucified as we might want him to. Because you watch a movie like The Passion of the Christ, or you read a book about what it was like to be crucified, and there's a lot of gory detail that Matthew could have spilled out for us, but no, he doesn't go there. And it's not because he's being careless, it's not because he's just skimming over the stuff and just giving us the spark notes. No, look at how long Matthew's chapter about Jesus' trial and crucifixion is. He's got tons of detail in here, but what does Matthew want us to focus on? He has a lot more detail, a lot more to say about the people who were there. The people who watched this happen and what they had to say. Because Matthew is encouraging us to find our place at the cross of Christ. What perspective do we have as we watch Jesus being crucified? That's 
how our faith intersects with our life. And there are a couple negative examples here, right? First of all, the Roman Roman soldiers. They really latched onto this idea that Jesus said he was the king of the Jews, right? Nobody had more power than Caesar at that time. Nobody was more in charge over the land of Judea and the Jewish people than the Roman government, so they were particularly brutal against anyone who showed signs of being a rebel or a revolutionary. So this guy, some people called him King of the Jews. Well, if he has any authority, then why is this happening to him? They made Jesus into the butt of their joke, into a punchline. They twist together a crown made of thorns, a plant that was likely available to them. They just grabbed it, made a thorn, uh, thorn crown, stuck it on his head. They drape him in a scarlet robe, likely one of their Roman army-issued capes, and they put a little stick in his hand, a little pretend scepter. They're making fun of him. They're saying, hail to this king. You thought you were so in charge. You thought you were so in control, but look at you now. Where is your army? He had those 12 disciples, yeah, but they weren't exactly army special forces. They weren't exactly Navy SEALs, were they? And where are they right now? They had all abandoned them. So this king of the Jews, with nothing to his name, without any authority, without any power, has no choice but to just be crucified in their perspective. They were making light of Jesus. To them, Jesus was just a passing phase, just come and go. This was another day at the office for the Roman soldiers, another criminal to be crucified. And then when Jesus is being crucified, there are those onlookers who continue to make fun of Jesus, but they have a little bit different of an angle than the Roman soldiers did. They're picking apart things that Jesus said about himself, that he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, like we talked about last week. That he is the son of God. And they say, well, if these things were true, then obviously this would not be happening to him. They take what Jesus said and he did, the miracles that he did, the teachings that he gave, and they use that as evidence that he must not be who he actually says he is. And then, the first thing Jesus says in this lesson that Matthew records for us in a different language is in the language likely that Jesus would have spoke at the time, Aramaic. He says, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani, quoting Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason that Matthew records it in the language Jesus would have spoken it in is so that we can understand why people are confused. Eli, Eli sounds like Elijah. The people are saying, he's calling Elijah. And then what do they do? Let's stand back. Let's see if God answers his prayer. Let's see if Elijah comes. They had a let's wait and see kind of attitude about Jesus. Because brothers and sisters, this is how the sinful world reacts to Jesus on the cross. He's a passing phase of no importance, the Roman soldiers said. Or let's see if he holds up the snuff if we actually listen to what he says. Let's see if it's worth following Jesus. Or let's take what Jesus says in his word or the things that Jesus does. Let's hold it up in the crucible of experience and let's see if it's worth believing. But they all completely miss the mark, don't they? They all have a this world mortal perspective. If this life 
if this world were Jesus' main goal, then he would have gotten off the cross. But it's not. And that's why they miss understanding who he really is. I think that's the beef we could have with Dua Lipa's question. How does your faith intersect with your life? How does your relationship with Jesus affect your life? Well, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he is your life. There's no intersection. He's the whole thing. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he's everything to us. Otherwise, he's nothing. Either that is the Messiah on the cross, or that's a nobody. There is no in-between. So what are we going to say about Jesus? Who gets it right? Who sees Jesus in Matthew's account and understands who this is? Is it the Roman centurion who says, surely this was the Son of God? Well, I'm not exactly convinced he understands what that means when he says it. Was it Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who comes and takes his body, buries it in his own tomb? Tremendous respect that he showed. Was it the Marys who stood by the grave after Jesus was buried out of love and respect and awe and grief for their beloved Jesus? Well, there's a character here that responds exactly correctly to Jesus' death, and it is creation itself. Jesus breathes his last, and what happens? The earth quakes. It has no, no option. It has no other choice but to respond because this is the Son of God. This is the Word that created it, the world. And so the world responds when the Son of God dies. The earth quakes. The sky turns to darkness. And the dead, the very dead, come out of their graves. And the, the temple curtain, the symbol of God's holy separation from sinful, impure human beings, is spontaneously torn in two, symbolizing the truth of what Jesus' death means. Creation itself gives Jesus the glory he deserves, because no human being was able to. Creation itself understands the significance of Christ's death because nobody that was there could. But now you do. See, the soldiers mocked Jesus, mocked his authority, mocked his power, his strength, not realizing that he had power over them in that very moment. And like pawns, they were playing into his plan, even by killing him. Those people that mocked Jesus and said, if he is the Son of God, he'll get down from the cross. They were right about the first part. But Jesus proved he is the Son of God by staying on the cross. Those people said, let's wait and see if God will help him. The fact that Jesus underwent God the Father turning his back on him, that was part of his salvation plan for you. See, these people all try to rob Jesus of his dignity, but their attempts to mock him, to shame him, only showed his glory even more because he endured all of that for you. Because no spit on his face, no insult that he endured, no whip on his back, no nail through his flesh was going to stop him from staying on that cross for you. 
to forgive your every sin. To tear the curtain between you and God. To rid everything that separates you from the holy God who created you. To throw away your sin. To vanquish your greatest foe. This is not just some teacher. This is not just some influencer. Jesus is not just some guy we can relegate to a corner of our lives. He has saved our lives. He's it. He's everything. How does that intersect? That's it. So think what you want about Stephen Colbert, but what he said was right on the money. Death is not defeat. That's what everyone failed to realize. They thought Jesus' death was his defeat. It's not. It's his victory. And therefore, your death is not your defeat. It's your victory. Because Jesus died to give you so much more than just happiness and comfortability in this life. He died to give you peace with God forever. That's your Jesus. That's your peace here and now. So there are an infinite number of ways that that affects your day-to-day, wouldn't you say? That's going to change the way you answer the phone, the way you think about the stranger walking down the street, the way you react to the news. That's going to change everything. And you can spend the rest of your life examining and studying and digging down to what that really means about the next second, the next few minutes, the rest of the week, that Jesus has died for you and you're going to live eternally. In fact, how does next week sound? As you walk with us to the empty tomb and see what impact that has on your here and now. Walk with us. Amen. Let's sing the song of mercy.